This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man, in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, New City. Uh, My name is Zach, and I'm one of the uh, pastors here at the church. Um, And just a little announcement ahead of time. There was a little power line that kind of got knocked over over here. Nothing's in danger. No one needs to go do anything. But we may lose power. Um, so if that happens, you know why, and I will just yell uh, from up here. So, uh, but hopefully that won't happen. Uh, so recently, uh, I was with one of my friends, and he commented to me how interesting it was that the thing that really kind of like captures people, that really like stirs up a movement, often isn't um, rhetoric um, or you know like a political speech, uh, but the thing that really captures our hearts tends to be song, tends to be art. Um, And that's why you can look at people like Bono, uh, Bob Marley, uh, or Bob Dylan, he's another Bob we like, uh, who is so able to use art and song to kind of just capture us, Uh, not just in an individual way, but almost in this kind of like group way, uh, where they kind of tap into our group consciousness and really shape us. Um, They use song and story to typically help us see past something uh, that we usually get hung up and to see something beyond that that's even greater. Uh, And this is what we see the psalmist actually doing this morning. He talks about grabbing his lyre, uh, which is just a little musical instrument, and he wants to use song this morning uh, to help us uh, hear a story, a particular story about how we often tend to kind of fall into uh, the pit of folly uh, on our way to understand uh, something about our own value. And so he tells us this song, he tells us this story to help us avoid it. Uh, And this psalm opens how I imagine kind of a a concert would open. Uh, The musician comes up to the microphone, and 
he calls everybody to attention. He kind of says, hey, the young, the old, uh, the rich, the impoverished, uh, the people on this side of the political spectrum, everybody in between, the people on that side of the political spectrum, and the religious and the irreligious, I need you to hear something that I have for you. I have something you need. I have something you need to learn and take down into your heart so it can transform you. Um, And this is kind of actually always the function of the Psalms. Uh, They're how we kind of sing truths to ourselves, and that's what they actually did for the Israelites as well. They were the kind of official songbook uh, for Israel. It's how they sung these truths into their lives. And one of the unique things about this psalm that I really like is, first, it's a psalm, uh, but second, it kind of echoes some of Proverbs. It even says it has a proverb for us. Uh, It has a riddle before us. Uh, And the third thing is it has these ecclesiastical kind of undertones, which is a book of the Bible that asks some pretty big questions, some weighty questions. And so we kind of see three, like, wisdom books kind of at play in a single psalm, which is kind of amazing. In, the, in, in one sense, what this is, psalm is trying to do is it's trying to ask a very stark question that kind of makes us a little uncomfortable. But it's a question that we need to ask and we need to try and find an answer for. And this is the question. What is the point if everything fades away? What is the point if it seems like injustice, injustice just kind of keeps going and growing? Um, and the kind of rich just continue to get richer and the poor kind of continue to get looked over. What is the meaning of that? And then even going further, what's the meaning in that? If all that happens, and then we just die. It's a very stark, heavy question for us. Thankfully, he gives us this in a song. It kind of makes it a little bit more palatable for us, right? And so he's going to help us kind of solve this big question uh, through a song. And we're going to look at this song by looking at these three points. First is, why this riddle? Uh, why does it have to be a riddle? Uh, second, uh, what is the path of folly that he wants us to avoid? And third, what is the path of wisdom, and how do we get on that path? Talking about why, why this riddle. Um, so when you get into the psalm, when you get to verses 5 and 6, you see the psalmist ask a very simple question. And it's a why question. He says, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me and those who trust in their wealth and boast about the abundance of their riches? Uh, One theologian on this passage actually notes that that kind of why right here is meant to open us up, to make us see past kind of the, the quick responses that we might have to this question and to see something a little bit bigger, not to just kind of settle for an oversimplified answer. Because I think what we tend to do when we see this or when we see other situations or circumstances that aren't the best, we tend to go, I'll tell you why you're afraid. And we look back down and we say like, okay, so he's got times of trouble that's going on. All right, there's iniquity around him all the time. He's being cheated and he's suffering. And also everybody's bragging about how rich they are around him. Right, you go, that's why you're afraid. Um, You should be, your circumstances stink. You need to change them. Um, we feel that. We might not say that, but we feel that, right? We kind of feel, hey, you have bad circumstances. You should get out of them. Uh, and the thing is, is we're like masters at trying to do that, to get out of our circumstances. Uh, we might be masters at it, but we do it in really unhealthy ways. Uh, and these are three ways that I think we tend to kind of do this. The three that kind of come to mind. First, we ignore our circumstances. Uh, anybody else a procrastinator, right? Yeah. You have that big priority. Uh, maybe you're a student. You have that paper you have to write, and you're like, I don't I can't even, no, I'm not going to do it. It's going away. 
Uh, the second one is that we numb ourselves. Uh, this is like the idea that, hey, I have no power over my circumstances and, or the fear and anxiety that comes from it. So I'm just going to try and just turn off those feelings. Uh, I'm going to, you know, binge a ton of Netflix. Uh, I'm, you know, going to turn to things that ultimately aren't going to help me. They're going to actually kind of make me uh, more fearful and more anxious. Uh, and then the third thing that we tend to do is we tend to kind of harden ourselves. And by this, what I mean by that is we tend to kind of have this uh, approach where we go, oh, circumstances, you think you can take me down? No way. You don't know who you're messing with. I can do this. I can go through anything. I can do whatever I need to do in order to conquer my circumstances. And we kind of harden our hearts and just bulldoze through things. And so these kind of tend to be our quick responses to tough circumstances. Um, and the thing that we can miss and what the psalmist is kind of calling us to do is he's calling us to pay attention to our circumstances, not for the purpose of kind of trying to change them. That might be a different thing, right? But instead what he's trying to do is he's trying to call us attention to notice our circumstances so we can actually see beyond them. It's not that they're unimportant, but he wants us to be able to see beyond them so we can actually see the broader question, which is where do we find our hope? Where do we find our meaning? Where do we find our security in the midst of uncontrollable circumstances? So in other words, this is the question uh, that the psalmist is kind of putting forward to us. It says, if my strength, if my insight and my ability is totally off the table as a solution to my circumstances, what's my hope? How am I going to get through this? What, what strength do I have? Where do I draw from? And that's why the psalmist kind of calls this a riddle. Uh, because it is actually calling us to see beyond what we might think is the obvious answer. That's what riddles do, right? You kind of get a riddle and you think, oh, I think I know the answer. But you really don't. You have to kind of go beyond it. You have to see something bigger in order to really answer the riddle. And so that's what the psalmist is doing. He's drawing us out. He's kind of getting into our hearts in a deeper way that mere kind of facts alone don't tend to do. He's saying, you need to observe, you need to think, you need to engage with the reality of your limits as a human being in order to come to a solution that isn't simply ignoring, numbing, or hardening your heart. In other words, a psalmist knows that people need to be drawn out. He knows that we tend to kind of prefer really uh, simple, self-oriented uh, solutions to really complex problems. Uh, and a great illustration of this is I don't know if you've ever, uh, I'm sure you have, we all have, right? Sometimes you're the one dealing this out and sometimes you're the one on the receiving end. But uh, listening, we're terrible listeners. I know I can be a terrible listener. Somebody will be telling us about a problem going on in their lives and sometimes we even say it, but we always definitely at least feel it. We're kind of like, man, if you just would have done something a little bit different back then, you wouldn't be having to deal with these circumstances, Right? Or then we think back about something that like a similar situation that really actually wasn't that similar to the situation they're going through and saying, oh, I did that then. And if they knew what to do like I did, then they'd be okay. And we tend to kind of have these simple, self-focused solutions to really complex problems. And so we listen to people's dating woes. We listen to financial problems. We listen to familial conflict. And we kind of tend to think, man, if they just would have done the right thing a little bit sooner, it would have been okay. That's what we tend to do. And because we tend to do that, this is why we need the psalm. Uh, it's one of the things we actually notice that Jesus does too. Jesus uses kind of proverbs or parables or stories, if you will, to kind of draw us out from that tendency to go towards those simple solutions. He says, I know that when you get fearful and afraid that you tend to lock down, uh, that you tend to be a little bit more rigid and unable to see yourself and your world as it truly is. 
And so Jesus moves towards our hearts. He draws us out, and he says, I want you to see something. That's what Jesus does. And so we need this psalm. We need scripture because Jesus knows that we're fear-oriented creatures. Uh, The psalmist didn't know this when he was writing this, but we all have little things in the back of our brains called amygdalas. And amygdalas kind of shut us down when there's stuff that's scary. And it's really helpful, actually. But sometimes we get stuck. Sometimes we, we can't navigate our fears and anxieties. And there's many things we need in order to kind of navigate those, right? We need friends that we can talk to. Uh, we need to, to exercise. Uh, we need to sometimes go talk to a counselor. And sometimes we need medication. Uh, but the thing that we really need, the thing that is certainly a, a great power that we need, is we need something that's able to kind of pierce our hearts that can actually help us handle these fears that are coming, coming at us at a, at a rapid pace. And that's what scripture offers us. And so kind of applying this to our lives, we need to see that God's word going to it is an essential part of living in his world well. The psalm shows us that God's word is incredibly uh, relevant to our hearts um, and also to our ragingly anxious and fearful culture. We, we need this. So my question for you and I today is when you're afraid, do you actually think about scripture as a place that you could go to, to potentially find God's presence, to potentially find just a sense of calming down that you need in your fears, the sense that you can actually be validated in some of the fears that you're facing too, right? Like that's what the psalmist is doing here for us. He's saying these are real fears. Do you, do you, do you think about that? And I think this is why the, the psalmist and God sometimes uses these kind of riddles is because he wants us to reconsider what we tend to assume about him, about ourselves, and about other people when we're really afraid. He's kind of saying, I want to cut through this fear so that you can know that I'm with you. I want you to cut, I want to cut through this fear so that you can see beyond it. And that's why I think it's so important to him that he actually says at the beginning of this psalm, hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world. He's wanting to be with us in our fear. And I think that's what we all crave, right? When we're afraid, one of the things we really want is we want somebody to be there with us in our fear. And this is God saying, I'm there. I'm there with you. Looking at our next point, we see that God is not only saying that I am there with you in your fears, but he's also trying to show you, hey, here is a way to avoid a a potential path to folly when you're afraid. That I really don't want you to go down. And in order to kind of understand this part of the psalm, I think there's uh, three things I'm going to refer to today as the three F's. Um, there is uh, the fool, uh, there's the fear, and then there is the folly. And these all kind of work together to help us understand this psalm. Uh, so one of the ways that wisdom literature in the Bible helps us understand uh, how to live in God's world rightly, how to kind of navigate our fears correctly, uh, is by pe- uh, setting up a path of folly and a path of wisdom. Um, and another thing that it does, it tries to kind of show you this character who's called the fool. He's the one who kind of goes down that path to folly. Uh, and it's a kind of a way of showing us like, hey, this is what we should not do. And that's what we see in this psalm. The psalm here today kind of talks about the fool as this person in verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and those who boast in their abundance of their riches. So that's the, the fool for us this morning. The fear, or the second thing that we see is the fear. Uh, And while there's many kind of fears reflected in this psalm, I think there's one kind of bubbling up underneath all of them. And it doesn't really necessarily come out straight and say it. The thing that this psalm is wrestling with is this. 
If the cycle of injustice just seems to keep growing and growing, do I matter in that? If the wealthy seem to be able to take care of all their problems, but my problems just continue to grow, does anyone see me? Am I alone? What's going to be the answer to this? And so that's the kind of cosmic fear that we deal with. That's though it bubbles up in our hearts, and that's what the psalm points out. So here's then is the folly. The folly that the psalmist wants us to avoid is buying into the assumption that we're alone, that nothing matters, and that maybe we should actually go the way of the fool and try and use riches as a means to build our meaning, as a means to kind of help us ignore death. And so the psalmist is saying, don't go this way. This is his uh, form of kind of doing a monkey see, monkey do not do, right? Um, He's saying, he's trying to make it extremely explicit for us because he knows that this is a pit that's really easy for us to fall into. And we're trying to figure out what does make me valuable? What does give me purpose? And there's this thing that happens to us many times in life that can really distress us. And it's when we see somebody has something that we don't. Uh, there's definitely kind of a level of envy there. Uh, but beyond that, too, there's this, this feeling that, like, when you, know, when you see somebody who gets a house that you've always wanted or somebody who gets to go on the vacation that you've always wanted to go on to, but you know you'll just never have the time or the money to go on, uh, or maybe they're just able to use their connections, their status, and their money to kind of just avoid a pain point in life that you can't, it tends to kind of make you wonder that question. It's like, well, who's going to take care of me? I would love to be taken care of. I feel kind of abandoned here, kind of alone. It's that fear kind of bubbling up, right? And so when we read this psalm, at first we might be tempted to kind of like point at the rich and be like, they're the problem. Um, And certainly we're all called to kind of steward our wealth in a godly way. But I think here in this psalm, the, the wealthy seem more to function as a means of exaggerating something that we're already bumping up against, which is the frustrated feeling that we all have of being limited creatures, Uh, We kind of see ourselves struggling with the limitations of life, and we look at the rich, and we think they don't have to deal with anything. In fact, the psalmist kind of even puts forward, he's like, it almost feels like they don't even have to worry about death. That's how much it feels like they have their lives together. And it's kind of interesting, too, because what we do is we kind of rail at the rich while then very much secretly wishing to be like them. Uh, That's kind of what we do. We have a double-sided heart there. Um, And really, you could call us, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses pitfall, Right? Uh, The American version of this, I think, is particularly uh, diabolical. And the reality of it is, is that most of us will never, ever catch up with the Joneses because this is the secret fact about the Joneses. They keep getting richer. Um, They keep getting more stuff. They keep getting more um, opportunity, more flexibility. Um, They're almost like these characters that we build up in our minds. And the devastating reality of this pitfall is that we can look at other people and we try and find our value in terms of how we measure up with those people. These are the very same people that this psalm would say falter, fail, and are ultimately going to die. That's why verse 11 says to us that their graves are going to be their homes forever. Kind of another way of saying this is the real difference between you and them, whoever them is, those Joneses, right, is the fact that they might have a little bit nicer of a tombstone or a coffin than you. But then it all kind of stops there. Uh, and there's this uh, poem that kind of draws this idea out. It's called Ozymandias, and it's by Percy B. Shelley, and it goes like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. A visage is like a face. 
whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. That's kind of the picture for us of the way of folly. The lone and broken down statue captures it pretty well. The psalmist is identifying that the more kind of money that we have, the more opportunity that we have, really the more tools our heart has to try and run away from the reality that we're limited creatures and that life can be painful. But death, the psalmist says, is kind of the ultimate equalizer, and that should ultimately wake us up from the slumber of folly. It says, don't go down this way. And this kind of reveals to us any kind of part of our status that we try and build our, our meaning upon is ultimately going to crumble into the sand. So the application for us, I think, is this, is to kind of take a moment and just do some self-reflection, right? How, how tempting is it? How often do we kind of run to the idea that we have a pension, that we have a 401k, um, that we uh, tend to find our, our value in how many deals we can execute and the money we can put in our pocket or put in the pocket of the company? Or how easy it is to kind of think that we're really going to be safe and secure when we can finally get that house that we've been eyeing. You know, that one that's on the top of Indian Hill. It's the three stories one. And it has all that extra, like, storage space with those closets. Man, when you get this extra storage space, that's how you know you make it. (laughs) We run to those things. That's what we do. And the psalmist is trying to say, don't go there. He reminds us in verse 12 that it doesn't matter how rich you are, that man in his pomp will not remain, that he is like the beasts that perish. And so far, to do a little recap, what we've learned, right, is that we're all going to die and all of our stuff's going to fade away. We all doing good? Yeah? All right. Yeah, it's a tough point. There's no kind of uh, moving around that. And so we kind of look at that and like, what, what a takeaway is there in this for me? I think it's this. I think if we can slow ourselves down in our fear enough to be able to kind of recognize the fact that, like, there's things that we tend to run to over and over again to validate ourselves. And we probably all have two or three things that we tend to go to over and over again when we're just afraid and on autopilot. We just go there. And so the thing that this psalm does, like being a riddle, right, is it slows us down in our fear. That's what scripture does. It kind of chose to slow us down in our fear and to actually recognize what are the things I'm running to. And I bet, you know, if we did take some time to reflect on that, we could come up with a couple of those things. And God would be kind of saying to you, that's the path of folly. Beware of this path. Um, and we see kind of what verse 13 says, that this is the path, right, of those who have foolish confidence, confidence in things that are going to fade. And it says what it says. It says that like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, that death shall be their shepherd. Uh, being appointed for Sheol in the Old Testament is basically uh, the Bible's way of saying that without God's intervention, you're toast. Your own ego will actually eat you alive, and that our death won't just be physical, but it will also be eternal. That's kind of the end for all of us on the path of folly. And so if you're like me, you kind of hear this path of folly and you're like, got it, I don't want to be on this path. Tell me how to get on the path of wisdom, right? Let's do that. Let's figure out how do we, how do we get on this path of wisdom because it seems like we're pretty helpless on our own, right? 
Um, and we need these two things to get on the path of wisdom. I love this too, because if you go back and look at the lyrics of the song that we sang right before this, those are the points basically of the song too. Um, that we need a ransom and we need a new love. And we need a new ransom, or we need a ransom and we need a new love. So what each of us needs is to be rescued or ransomed. You can look at this psalm and see that it actually uses that word ransom several times. Uh, so kind of like the, the Greek version of this Hebrew word that we see here for that is ultimately means to be uh, purchased, um, to be purchased into freedom from slavery or from being a prisoner. And so what the psalm is saying is that you actually need a new shepherd because the, the shepherd of death is leading you nowhere. You need a new shepherd who's willing to ransom you away and actually give you new and true meaning. And this is ultimately what we see Yahweh doing when we look into verse 15, that he becomes a ransom. And he says these, these great words. It says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. So what we see earlier is that we can't ransom ourselves. It's, it's futile. We can't do, we can't pay that price. One commentator points out that this phrase, but God, is the great Old Testament hope preceding the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's saying if God doesn't intervene in the midst of this cycle of sin and death and injustice, we are hopeless. And so that we can actually look at Jesus and see him as the lamb who would face the slaughter of death. That he is the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the ransom that we need. This is the ransom that God offers us. And it's connected to the second point, which is a new love. We need a new love. So Jesus' ransom purchases us and buys us from the path of folly, places us on the path of wisdom. But how do we actually live? Where do we find the power to live as wise people in the salvation that we have? We need something else kind of to become more beautiful to us than the power of our own competency, than our own egos. Um, and I was recently listening to a Tim Keller talk where he's uh, reflecting on something he heard from J.I. Packer about how do our hearts change, right? How do we make that switch from finding our own competency and egos as the most beautiful thing and actually place it onto God and who he is? How do we do that? What does that look like? This is what he says, J.I. Packer says. It says, in the Old Testament, the high priests, they went back into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. Um, and they would wear this ephod, or it's basically like, you know, this big robe uh, with this breastplate that had these precious stones on them. And on these stones were inscribed the tribes of Israel. And so basically the, the, the high priest's job would be able to kind of go and be the intermediate between the people and between the holiness of God. And that's how God could dwell with a broken, sinful people. But this is a kind of echoes or foreshadows what we actually see in the New Testament, where the New Testament is very adamant that Jesus is our actual high priest. He's the one who's actually before the throne of God. There is not too much uh, in this for us to, or it wouldn't be too much for us to kind of consider this and say that when Jesus takes us before the Father, we're inscribed on his very heart. That he kind of ushers us in before the face of the Father, so that when the Father actually sees you, he sees his, your name written on his heart, that he actually sees an absolute beauty. So what Packer is kind of saying is this, is that this is the only way for us to ultimately be freed from the cycle of our self, kind of destructive preoccupation with wealth and our own competency. It's that we would actually see the one who is so preoccupied with us that he would face death in order to be with us. That we get to see the one who set aside his own competency so that he could love us, that he could live with us. 
They could free you from the path of folly. So friends, I hope that as you hear the gospel, that you see it as much more than fire insurance or some kind of pie in the sky hope. And that Jesus' ransom not only frees you from eternal death, but also begins to give you access the only way possible to ever be free from the trap of trying to make meaning in things that will ultimately fail you. Because we'll go back to it over and over again. In his talk, Packer concludes, he says this, here's what it means to be spirit-filled. We're kind of in our case on the path of wisdom. It is to be melted with the spiritual understanding that God sees you as an absolute beauty because of the work of Jesus Christ. And that in his eyes, which is the only opinion that matters in the whole universe, he finds you more precious than all the jewels that lie beneath the earth. That's who ransoms you, and that's who gives you this new love. The love that can actually change our hearts and where we run to is the love that can actually look us in the eyes and tell us, you matter. I have the power, I have the authority, I have all beauty to bestow on you, meaning that can survive any circumstance. That's what we most need to hear. And so our application for us is this. Are you able to feed your soul this good news? Uh, Keller uses this phrase, it's like convict your heart of this good news. Uh, and typically we hear convict and we kind of think that's talking about sin, right? But here what he's saying is like, no, you actually need to take this gospel and work it, kind of knead it into your heart so that you can actually realize that this gospel is actually meant for you and the way that that actually comes in and frees you personally, makes, makes you free from the fears that you, you face. So the question for us is, are you able to do that? And if you are, continue to do that. And if you're not, there's good news. Throw yourself on the grace of God. Um, he will help you. That's the whole point when we had the, the very first point of this sermon, right? Is that in Scripture, God uses Scripture to kind of help melt our hearts to his love. That's where we need to go. So run back there over and over again. It will actually be the beauty that changes us. Uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, uh, big, big name, right? Uh, so he was uh, a guy who lived in the 1700s uh, who actually helped start the Moravian church. Um, and he was a count, uh, which meant that he had a lot of money and a lot of connections and a lot of status. Um, but it's also well known about him that he gave almost all of his money away. Uh, and he counts one of the reasons for why that happened uh, is connected to this experience that he had as a young man where he went to go see this painting of Jesus. And it was Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. Um, and more than the painting, it was the words underneath it that kind of changed him. And these are the words. He said, all this I did for thee, what dost thou for me? All this I did for thee, what dost thou for me? It was an understanding of the reality of Jesus' love that kind of pierced Zinzendorf's heart and changed him, and changed the way that he viewed not only his wealth, but also other people. It's the way, thing that changed him to make himself see that the biggest enemy, the biggest thing that he should fear is being trapped by wealth, being trapped by the idea that he has to avoid his death, and so that he can be spent because he knows he has eternity with the Father. And friends, that is our hope, that when sacrificial love actually captures our hearts, that our eyes can finally be lifted off ourselves, their eyes can finally be lifted off the things that we run to over and over again, and they can fall on our beautiful Savior who validates you, who, who gives you security, and gives you a future. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for the reality that you know our hearts and how we long for meaning. You know how we ache to have purpose that will not fade and have a security that will not falter. 
We confess that we have sought all sorts of different means to control and quiet our hearts. And honestly, they've just left us more exhausted and more fearful than we were before. And so this morning, would you help us to take your love to a deeper level in our hearts? That we would know the power of your ransom and the joy that comes from your approval and the loving work of Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.